0: Friends, would you turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 11? We're going to continue to study this great chapter, Hebrews 11. We're just going to read a few verses this morning, beginning in verse 20. Hear now God's word. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. Let's pray together. Father, we just sang those beautiful words that we've seen the Son, the ever-risen Lord. We know that none of his promises are in vain, and it feels like the weight of Hebrews chapter 11 and the weight of our lives is pressed against that promise. Would you indeed this morning, this week, this month, this year, prove yourself to be faithful? We ask because you invite us to ask, and we do it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I don't know if you guys know this, but the person who leads worship for us, Kenny, uh, my brother-in-law, has really perfected the art of grilling steaks. I mean, this man is an absolute master. He gets the tenderloin, he removes the silver skin, he cuts these enormous fillets, and then he takes them, he seasons them, he warms them to room temperature, he just kisses them on the grill, he lets them rest, and they're just absolutely incredible. They make me hungry for lunch right now. I've never eaten at Ruth's Chris, but I have had the steak bowl at Chipotle, and I'm telling you, man, these things are on point. Well, if you watch them do this, if you see a tenderloin, an entire tenderloin be cut up into steaks, you realize that there's a lot of leftover stuff. There's stuff on the top and the bottom and the sides that aren't really going to be formed into a steak. And so they just kind of get pushed to the side, the scraps, and they're delicious. They become a little dish like beef tips. Here's the point I'm trying to make about Hebrews 11. You take the whole of this thing and you begin to dice it up. And I know that all scripture is God-breathed, and you're really never supposed to say anything like I'm about to say, but the verses we just read, verses 20 to 22, just a quick verse on each person, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, they kind of feel like the beef tips between the fillets of Abraham and Moses. I mean, you think about this chapter and Abraham absolutely dominates. He's got 12 verses dedicated to his story. Moses comes in second. He's got seven verses that are set aside to describe the faith that God has given him. But everybody else in this chapter, they get a verse or two, or sometimes they have to share the verse with somebody else. So not only do you have this quick passing reference to all three of these men, but as you'll see, especially in the case of Isaac, who we're going to study in particular, his inclusion to begin with is questionable at best. Why take the time to mention these men? Why not get straight from Abraham to Moses and then save yourself some room at the end to talk about David and Samuel, who they only get a passing reference and they deserve more attention than the men we just heard. Well, as I wrestled with that, as I rue the day that I chose this text for Sunday and I was thinking about how to preach on this, I also thought about the context of worship today. We're going to do something very special in the worship service, and that is after the sermon, as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper, we're going to invite between both services four kids forward with their families who are going to make public professions of faith. These kids have been born in the church. They've been baptized in the church. They have all the benefits of membership to this church, but their salvation is not an inevitability. They have come in repentance and faith to rest on Jesus alone. And we're gonna celebrate that together as a church. This is a special day for us to see and celebrate their conversions, which means that somewhere along the way, someone somehow in some form, a parent, a teacher, a peer has taught them something about Jesus, right? They've imparted something of the gospel to them. And then today we celebrate the fruit of that impartation. This is the context of our worship service, celebrating the gospel going forward in families. You take that context, you think about what we're going to do, and you go back to Hebrews chapter 11, and you realize something very quickly. The middle of Hebrews 11, these paragraphs that we just read, are actually the only mention in this entire chapter about faith passing among family members. Think about where we've been and what we've studied. We've talked about Abel and Enoch and Noah, and they're not closely related as family. They're vaguely related only because everybody after Adam and Eve were initially vaguely related to each other. Nothing's talked about their family. And then after this, we're going to talk about Moses and Rahab and Gideon and Samuel. And they're not related to each other either. But only here in these paragraphs do you have multiple generations of faith. You've got Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, and then Joseph's two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. You have five generations of faith in these paragraphs. Faith is being passed from parent to child, parent to child, again and again and again. That's what's happening. That's the dynamic of Hebrews 11. Now, if you're still suspicious, if you think I'm trying to wrestle our passage into the context today to get us ready for what we're going to see and celebrate, then I call your attention to the very next verse, verse 23. He starts writing after he's talked about these five generations of faith. By faith, Moses, he begins. And we kind of begin to think he's going to start talking about the faith of Moses. We're going to hear all the wonderful things that happened in Moses's life. But wait a minute, he doesn't do that. Verse 23 by faith Moses when he was born was hidden for 3 months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. The very first thing that the writer to the Hebrews has to say about the faith of Moses has absolutely nothing to do with the faith of Moses. It's the faith of Moses's parents. It's a faith that Moses inherited from his parents and he now carries himself. And when you see that, you begin to understand how families are designed to work, how faith among families are designed to work, that faith passes from parent to child, parent to child, that God remains steadfast from generation to generation. But today, instead of talking about the remarkable faith of Moses' parents, instead we're going to focus on a piece of fumbling parenthood in Isaac. Because today we're going to camp out in verse 20 alone. Look again at this verse. It says, By faith Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. Now, that's a very passing reference. You've got to get back to the book of Genesis to uncover what the writer to the Hebrews is talking about. And when you do that, and when you begin to read the story of Isaac, you kind of realize that, in my opinion, Isaac is a bit of a two-dimensional character in Genesis. I mean, he's the least interesting of the founding fathers of faith. In fact, the most remarkable, memorable thing about him is that his dad almost sacrificed him. That's what we talk about when we talk about Isaac. When Isaac was 40, he married Rebekah. When he was 60, Rebekah miraculously became pregnant with twins, fraternal twins, Esau and Jacob. While she was pregnant and those boys were already wrestling with each other in her womb, God appears to her and he prophesies to her and he says, this is going to be a unique situation. In this situation, the elder brother is actually going to serve the younger brother. We continue reading in Genesis 25. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. I love that description. I wish I knew that in my childhood growing up because that would have been the ultimate slam on the playground. <laughs> if, you, if you get a hint of softness in another kid, you, can be, you could say that dude is like a quiet man dwelling in tents. He lacks energy. Um, not like Esau, who's the hunter. Well, the passage continues and you see what begins to happen. We read, Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Do you see what's beginning to happen here? This favoritism is forming between these two Twins, the father and the mother, they each pick a child that they resonate with. And I think an uncharitable family counselor might accuse Isaac in this moment of missing the providence of God for personal preferences at the dinner table. Esau, we're going to read, is going to grow up and trade his birthright for a bowl of stew, but his dad had already traded his affections for Jacob for not much more. Esau's foolishness is learned behavior. It's a sin that he sees in his father. All of this begins to come to a head in Genesis chapter 27. In Genesis 27, Isaac is old, he's becoming blind, he's starting to die, and because of that, he realizes this is the time to bless his eldest son Esau, to pass this blessing to Esau. And so Rebecca learns of this and she devises a trick, right? She says, if I can dress the younger son Jacob to look like Esau, then Jacob will get the blessing and not Esau. And you read Genesis chapter 27, and it is an absolutely awful chapter, and it's painful to read. You have this story of a marriage between Rebekah and Isaac. They were married at a time when Isaac had just lost his mother, and she comforted him in that loss. And now at the end of their life, she's in the shadows plotting against her husband to deceive him in his old age. Then you've got Jacob a man who was never fully loved by his dad. He's dressing up to look like his older brother Esau. And again and again in the passage, he has to deceive his dad and say, yes, dad, it's me. Yes, dad, I'm your firstborn son. I'm Esau. And when the whole thing is uncovered and everyone realizes what has happened, the story ends with Isaac shaking in horror over what he has done. And Esau pacifying himself, saying, when my dad dies, I'm gonna turn around and I'm gonna kill my brother for what he did to me. We're hundreds of years, hundreds of miles from Cain and Abel, and we have never evolved or left murderous hatred among family. This is an awful, awful story. It is truly awful. It is the height of family dysfunction, And yet, did you see in Hebrews chapter 11, this is the substance of what is being called attention to. There's an absolute audacity here when the writer says, it's by faith. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. I mean, To talk about the faith of Isaac in the same breath as talking about the faith of Abraham and the faith of Moses is surely to shrink the word faith to its most slender application possible. Here's the point we see here. It's so stupendous. I would never say this unless I saw it in our passage and I see it again and again in scripture. It's like the Holy Spirit Through the hand of the writer to the Hebrews, he reaches down into Isaac's parenting life. This thin slice of his life that looks like nothing but thinly veiled favoritism. A life that implicitly and wrongly turned around and taught Jacob how to favor his own son, Joseph, over all his other brothers. A life that stumbled past the prophecy of the Lord. A life that in this respect looks like black, burnt charcoal remains. And it's as if the Holy Spirit finds this infinitesimally small diamond from within the ruins and pulls it out and holds it up and says, look at what God has done. Look at it. God brought this faith in Isaac. Jesus really truly is the author and the perfecter of your faith. I'm absolutely dumbfounded. I see faith in Isaac. It's just hard to see with all the manifest unbelief in his life. It's hard to see faith in Isaac. And honestly. There's a lot of days that it's hard to see faith in your life and my life. The slender faith of Isaac reminds us that it is the object of our faith and not the caliber of our faith which counts. Robust, extravagant, unflinching, steadfast faith placed in anything apart from Christ is not worth anything. But faith that God gives... No matter how small or slender, be it the size of a molecule or a mustard seed, when lodged in Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, the sure and steadfast anchor of our soul who has passed into the heavenlies, that feather of faith is worth infinitely more than the weight of the world. Let's pray together. Jesus, for those of us who feel this very slender faith that's hard to see, I pray that you would remind us that you are the one who bears it in our life. You are the one that carries it to completion. You are the one who perfects it in such a way that when we stand before you face to face, it is a fully formed thing in us that is worthy of your salvation because you have done it in us. I pray that you would give us eyes of faith to see the object of our faith. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.